All right. How's that sound? Okay. Good. Okay. Um, so you heard the introduction of me, and most of that is true. Touch louder. Most of it is true, and yeah, I've. 20 years of, of practice, and I don't know that that qualifies me as any sort of expert or anything. It's 20 years of practice. Um, I still fall asleep. Um, you know, everything that you can imagine happens to you, happens to me as well. So the fact that I'm up here and giving this talk is, I don't think it's really either here or there. Um, so what I wanted to talk about tonight was mm, how the heart practices or how the Brahma Viharas uh, have the potential to arise just out of our basic mindfulness practice, off the cushion, out of retreat. Um, and I wanted to do this because oftentimes I, I've spent a great deal of time on long retreat and I was... Um, trying to add it up with, with someone the other, with the other day. And it's just about two and a half of the last six years I've spent in retreat. And um, not a whole lot of psychosis yet, but I might be getting there, who knows. So in that, my, my practice, oftentimes in the beginning of that, it seemed like it really just existed in retreat and then I would come home and then there would be life at home and, and sometimes I would crash and sometimes I was okay. Sometimes the practice would, would fade away. Um, and then I realized that a lot of that was actually just um, not having momentum of, of, of mindfulness or consistent mindfulness and when that was actually there in, in daily life then I could actually um, see the practice unfold. And of course it unfolds if I'm in retreat, if I'm, you know, they're teaching from the Satipatthana, then you can actually see a classic unfolding of the practice and retreat, and which is actually what brought me back to the retreat. I like to see um, the, the classical teachings unfold in that manner because it really shows me that what the Buddha was offering was a roadmap. It's, it's, a, it's a map. So about 10 years into practice, I had an opportunity to sort of um, get reacquainted with family. My grandfather had passed away, and my grandfather was an oral historian. Um, my father was a history professor, uh, specifically American history, African-American history as well. Um, so there were lots of family stories, oral histories and things that, that, that were shared. And once my father died, there wasn't really anybody in the family to sort of take up that, that thing. And, um, I volunteered as being sort of, at that time, had been estranged from my family. I was the only one living here on the West Coast. Everybody else was in the Midwest and South. So it was a way to get reacquainted. And in, I was a practitioner at the time. I was in the Thich Nhat Hanh community, which, you know, of course, my family found incredibly weird and, and culty for them. And so it just further separated me from the, from the family. Um, And in doing some of the genealogy or, or history work of my family, I ran across a document. It was a transcript. It was a transcript that was um, an interview that was done with my great-great-grandmother. And it was done in 1971, and she was 100 years old at the time. She lived to 103. 
And in this document, she described where she lived in Texas and, and they were sharecroppers and, you know, describe life as it was for them. And I found some great nuggets to help me do my research and things, absolutely wonderful. And a couple years had gone by and I looked at the document again and it dawned on me that the document said, you know, such and such university oral history project. And I realized, well, if it's an oral history project, well, clearly there's an audio tape for this. It took me two years to figure this out. I'm a little slow on the uptake at times. And so I, I'm calling around to the archives department at this, at this university, which had now been absorbed into the University of Texas system. So they, over the course of two or three years, they were unable to find the audio tape. And eventually I called one summer and I got an intern and I, I figured, okay, the intern, I could probably move them around a little bit to be able to, 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 you know, to make sure that they're actually looking for this document or looking for the audio tape. And I actually told her, I said, so the audio tape is probably, you know, in the file cabinet, it's probably fallen underneath something, it's on the box below, it's in the box to the left, the box to the right, or it's above. You know, I, it's really important to me to have this. She comes back a half an hour later, she has this audio tape. And that was the beginning of an absolutely an incredible journey for me. So she sends me the audio tape, it's a CD. I'm, I'm living here at the city at the time. And I, I put it on, and when I was in the Thich Nhat Hanh community, there was an ancestors practice that they would do called touching the earth practice. And I would do the touching the earth practice. And, and um, I put this CD on and I could hear this woman's voice. And it was absolutely incredible. I, 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 could, I could, she sounded like my grandmother. It's almost like I could feel her skin. I could feel the texture of her hair, everything. It was incredibly alive for me at the time. And so there were some nuggets of information that were in the um, audio tape that weren't in the written transcript. And I think it was mostly because they couldn't understand um, the vernacular she was speaking in. Her accent was, you know, she couldn't understand that. But having grown up in the family that I grew up in and, you know, and coming from Texas and Mississippi and Oklahoma, it just, it, you know, it sounded like the Queen's English to me, so it was, it was pretty easy to, to figure out what was happening. So she mentioned the name of the family that enslaved my family, which wasn't in the, the written document. So I, I used this information to track that family, mostly because with most African-American families, you can only go back in history you know, to Civil War, and before that, people were considered chattel slavery, so there are very few records. They're mostly probate records, so there may be a mention of a name or just a gender, but not much else. So I wanted to find someone in this family, descendants that may, you know, would have some history or, or something. So I was able to track down the, um, a descendant of the family, and it was a man who was living still in, in that part of Texas where my family came from. Um, they were all my family and his family. None of them had probably gone more than more than 100 miles, you know, since the end of, of the Civil War. They, they, they were all still there. 
um, his family had, had come. They were um, poor, uneducated folks that had got a land grant. There was a marriage. They got a land grant to come to ta Texas and, you know, uh, eventually had enough money to, to, to purchase slaves and, and so were able to build on their wealth that way. So I was essentially tracking their wealth to sort of see where they were. My practice on one end and I'm doing this on the other end and at some point in time I had the thought that maybe I could make this my practice, maybe I could bring my practice to this and multiple therapists told me no, <laughs> other teachers have told me no, but I was really compelled to, to, to do this, to, to try it out. I actually didn't know why I was doing it. I, I didn't have, have a deep sense of, of why I would do something like this. So eventually I end up um, finding this gentleman who at that time was 80 years old, a little over 80 years old. Um, he was willing to talk to me. I made multiple attempts to call him and it was incredibly hard. I, I got an understanding of why the therapist said probably this wasn't a good idea as I you know, would, would, would hang up the phone or sort of get to this place and like not really be able to do it. I was able to call him one time and I heard his voice and you know, he's 80 years old. This is a, a, a very, in East Texas, you know, the, the, mm, a drawl in the South, depending on where you are, looks like many different things. East Texas is a very long, drawn out, slow drawl. And so just in hearing the voice, it was like this instant triggering and activation in me. Like I could hear oppression. I could hear the legacy of slavery. I could hear all of those things just in the voice. Um, and so it would be frozen. Done that a couple times, you know, I would call, hear the voice, hang up. Eventually I worked with a teacher who suggested that, okay, what she helped me do was to find um, Anapanasati instructions, breath instructions, metaphrases, compassion phrases, pithy little quotes and, 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 and sayings and, and mental labels that I would use in my sitting practice. We laminated all of them, plastered them on this wall right in front of me where my little home office was. So now I could be fortified with the practice and actually be able to call and do this. So I finally call him. I've told this story a few times, and, and so the, the, the intensity and, and the emotion that's there is, is, is really, for me, is is the joy and the gift that I've been giving of, of this practice. So I get him on the phone and not much is happening because we don't know why we're talking to each other. So he asked me what it is that you know, I'm, I'm interested in and I tell him I'm interested in some, some probate records or pictures or photos of anything, of his family, the house, the, the, the sharecropping land, the plantation, maps, anything. And I asked him what he was interested in. And he tells me a little bit about himself and 
He was a member of, of what we call in Texas the Sons of the Confederacy. So I'm going to the sensations in my feet, and I'm going to the heartbeat that's racing, and I'm saying metaphrases for my new difficult person. He tells me that he wanted to talk with me because he was pretty sure that uh, my family had been involved in an incident that, that had happened, a, a tragedy that had happened um, when his mother was a little girl. So his mother was a little girl in this part of Texas at this time, there were public lynchings that were held. And there were public lynchings held by, you know, hundreds or sometimes, attended by sometimes hundreds or thousands of people. So as a little girl, she was taken to one of these by her father who participated in many of these things. She obviously had been traumatized by this um, because she had asked not to be there and didn't want to be there, and she was forced to be there because her father felt it was important that she needed to know how these folks should be treated, and she needed to know that they needed to have the fear of God put into them, was what she was told. So she was forced to do this over and over again. So she witnessed multiple lynchings of, of black folks, men and women, there. And he said that it derailed his mother's life, that from the time that she was a teenager, you know, she, she became pregnant with one of 10 kids, 10 or 11 kids. Drugs, alcohol, domestic abuse, one relationship after another. She had multiple things, and she knew what the cause of it was for her. She knew it. And what she had asked of her kids was that they not be infected with the sickness that everyone else around them was affected, in, infected with, and that she wanted them to live with dignity, and she wanted them to live with honor and humanity. He's a man growing up in Texas all through the 40s, 50s, 60s. And it's kind of like go along to get along. He's surrounded by everyone else who doesn't hold the same views or doesn't have, um, who were unable to have the courage or bravery to do something different, to actually see humanity. So he said he's in his 80s and he is wanting before he dies to live clean and clear and to honor his mother. So this is all happening. I'm noticing now that I'm actually able to hear every single thing that he has to say. 
and I'm able to track the sensations in my body, and I'm able to follow my breath, and it's all happening at the same time. There's fear, there's shame, and hatred wasn't there. The fear and the shame were underneath that, and the being able to have some, some sense of, of, of deeply listening to him, I could actually hear that. The shame was more what would other people think of me, me even having this conversation with him. So I'd let him know that the public lynching that he went to, that he thought that the person that was lynched was in, was in my family, wasn't actually somebody that was blood related to me. It was someone that was on the land that they were sharecropping, someone that, that possibly was on the, on the plantation as, as well, but they weren't blood related to me. He and I are blood related. there were these long pauses in the conversation. And at some point, he broke down and he's sobbing and in a little, a little bit of overwhelm. He, at this point, is in overwhelm. And I told him a little bit about myself. You know, I was uh, a meditator. And I decided, because there was enough mindfulness there in that moment, I said, I'd like to offer you, I'd like to be able to teach you a little meditation right now. It might be able to slow you down a little bit. It might be able to bring you back to the conversation. And I can hear him out of the, the tears and that saying, yes, this is possible. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I said, do you think you can take direction from a black man? Mostly I said that because I thought it might make him laugh, which it did. He laughed, I laughed. It sort of cut through that. And in that moment, I was able to offer to him what had been offered to me from a 2,600-year-old ancient practice of some simple breath instructions. We continued on with our conversation. We made plans to talk again. We never got a chance to talk again. His children intervened because they thought that this wasn't something that they wanted 
publicly known or they were concerned that I would write a newspaper article or, or, or um, a book or, or something or they thought I, wa I, I wanted something from them. So they cut it off. He died sometime after that. And as we ended our conversation, you know, we, we were both saying, yeah, we, let's, let's talk again. Let's do this. And I had mm, read him a poem that was one of the laminated things that, that I had on the, um, on the board in front of me. And this is a poem that I read him. When you get to the end of all the light you know, and it's time to step into the darkness of the unknown, faith is knowing that one of two things shall happen. Either you will be given something solid to stand on, or you will learn to fly. And he was really taken with that. I actually don't recall the author's name at the moment. Um, he was really taken with this and actually thought that it was something that I had written and said, wow, you know, we should get together. And he, he, was, he was wanting to get together. He was like, maybe we could write a country song or something. And, and my first thought was, I don't think that's going to happen. We should just take things step by step, you know. <laughs> and he laughed. It was a thing. We, it, was, it was interesting. So in, in all of our exchange, there was actually, in, in all of that, there was lots of laughter that, that, that was in that. Um, and I felt I could actually fully embrace him and who he was. And I think in that, sitting in that fire and going through that pain and being able to, have, be, being able to do so with some mindfulness, the blooming of compassion was just right there. And with the blooming of compassion, there's a blooming of some joy that's there as well. And there's some equanimity that's there as well. And I can actually see the interplay of all the heart practices at play right at that moment. So I continued on. doing my family history and, 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 and research and had an opportunity to go back to East Texas. So while I'm there, against the wishes of my brother who said, you can go, but I'm not going to go and do this, I decide I'm going to go to the gravesite, go to the cemetery in town. Get to the cemetery. I find the gravestone, I can see where it is, and, and I'm, I'm standing there. And I had to 
bring myself to some mindfulness. I had to center myself a little bit because I realized that after 80 years and him finally finding his voice, finding some courage, finding some bravery, and against his wishes, his kids have now embedded the Confederate flag into his gravestone. And the first thing that came up for me is I'm standing there, well, one, thinking, hopefully there's no other black people standing around watching me stand at the graveside crying at the, at, with the Confederate flag there. That's not, you know, it's probably not, that's just not gonna go over well. Self-preservation. I, all I could do is just shake my head. And ultimately, it's a grave. He's not actually there. But what I learned through that entire journey, well, one, in the way that I practiced before, I was typically, I was just telling somebody actually before this, I was, so the, the, the first, most of the first parts of the practice that I did were typically concentration practices. I was um, absorption, John Estates, those were the retreats that, that I had done. And there wasn't a lot, wasn't a whole lot else that I was initially interested in. And I was pretty skeptical and I was the over-efforter. I was the one on the retreat who was over-efforting and my practice would eventually get really, really, really tight and pretty rigid. But all of that, that journey and seeing the blooming of those heart practices out of this basic mindfulness instruction straight out of in this very life. It's a seed of faith that, that's planted for there, that's made it impossible for me to doubt the practice or to doubt the teachings because I've seen my direct experience is there's nothing outside of the scope of practice. There's nothing outside of it. There's nothing that you cannot work with. It may be incredibly difficult and you may need to back off for a while, for a time period, who knows, but there's nothing outside of it and that we were gifted something that's feather light, that's able to cut through stone. That the gentlest things overcome the hardest things. That eventually kindness and grace and ease are the only thing that matters. And that actually, if we approach our meditation practice and our sitting practice in that way, it's kind awareness. It's coming back with a kindness and a gentleness. And mostly, 
really allowed me to see that although my personality is still here and I can be ornery and mean and ridiculous and on and on as, as anybody else, the one thing that actually doesn't happen and has not happened since then is that my heart has never been closed and I do not close it to anybody. I don't even know that it's possible now. I can't unknow what I know and I can't unsee what I've seen. And it's allowed me to reframe what's most important in my practice and it's allowed me to, 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 to search out or see what's um, trying to find the essence of the practice. And the first time I heard this was from Kamala Masters, I believe, and it's from the Dhammapada, and it's for me, it's, it's just... On one hand, it's the only thing I actually need to know to keep me going in the practice. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reasons for the teachings. And for me, that's pretty much that's the only guidance that I actually need. And I sample all sorts of things, and I was involved in all sorts of things, spent lots of years, two blocks from here, involved in all sorts of things, making drugs, selling drugs. And those were experiences And all the various things that, that I've done have been little side roads, but I'm crystal clear that this is the path. It doesn't need to be the path for everybody. It doesn't need to be the path for anybody, but it's allowed me to be in a place of not looking, not searching, not seeking, but to continue to open and open and open and to connect. And it all came from, from this man and myself being able to pierce each other's heart and seeing the fragility of the heart and seeing the strength and resilience of the heart. And I know this isn't like your average or normal or traditional Dharma talk, but for me, it's actually easier for me to 
illustrate what happens via the story and that was the practice in action that was a practice off the cushion that was a practice out of retreat and it can look like that different stories for all of us It's a gift, the practice that we have is an absolute gift. And so I have deep appreciation for the teachers before me, Howie, and the experience that he has, and the teachers he's learned from. Once I've seen what I've seen, and once I know what I know, how could I not have the deepest regard and respect for a teacher who sat with Deepa Ma, give me a break. Come on. <laughs> so may the merits of this practice benefit all beings without exception and bring peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.